Welcome to The Barrel Banter, a show covering all things Milwaukee Brewers. From trades to signings, player analysis to game recaps, or discussing uniforms, ballpark food, and everything in between. Here are your hosts, Peter and David Goh. What's up, Brewers fans? Welcome to The Barrel Banter. I'm your host, Peter, David. The Brewers had a, a pretty successful week, but uh, the way Sunday's game went, it kind of feels like a downer of a week, even though we just went 4-2 and two and we're still sitting atop the NL Central. It certainly feels that way, especially with the way Sunday's game went. It was a pretty busy week for me, so I wasn't able to watch much of the week, but there were still a lot of things to that happened to discuss. Things that were interesting... I think we I don't I don't think we mentioned this on last week's podcast but there was the one nothing game they won that the only run that they scored was Garrett Mitchell reaching base advancing to second on the disengagement violation by U Darvish then he stole third and scored on a sack fly they played some more small ball on today on Sunday's game so there's some interesting things like that Burns play I don't know if you saw that one but when the p- pitch clock was winding down with a full count first and second, instead of delivering home when he knew that Suarez would be stealing. Instead, he lifted his leg and went to pick off to second, got Suarez leaning off the bag. And that was actually the play that Burns strained his left peck on. Now, thankfully, Burns is okay. But there have been some interesting plays as well, alongside interesting storylines, kind of weird games. And then, of course, the the Seattle sweep. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I should correct myself. I said sitting atop that National League Central, the Pirates technically actually overtaking the Brewers for that spot uh, at 16-7. and seven, The Brewers just went one win behind, half a game behind them. They're off to a good start. But, yeah, it's there were kind of some interesting games. Obviously, the ninth spot the Brewers gave up in the eighth was a bit of a, a wacky inning, and we'll get into uh, that. I, it kind of throws off all the great stats the Brewers' bullpens had so far this year in, like, one one inning. Um, I was thinking about what inning. What'd you say? The regression inning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The regression. I was, I was gonna say, I was trying to think of what, what do you call a nine-run inning in the eighth? If it's not a Menards big inning, like it's got to be bigger than that. I don't know what's, what's bigger that bigger than the Menards big inning. Whatever it was, the the Red Sox, the Red Sox definitely had it. Yeah, maybe maybe it would go back to Menards when they got eleven for the eleven percent rebate. There we go. That that would be yeah that 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 could work. That could work definitely. And and like you said, overall week wasn't bad. The Brewers swept the Mariners on the road. A good, a pretty good Mariners team who have been playing really well. Uh, Julio Rodriguez, who still had a good series, but um, he's been off to a great start this year. Jared Kelnick, of course, Wisconsin native as well, who was off to a, a hot start going into the series. So Brewers sweeping the Mariners, but then losing, unfortunately, two out of three from the Red Sox this week. And like you said, we've seen more small ball, even in the Brewers' loss in Game 3 on the Red Sox series. It was the seventh inning when the Brewers were tied and Joey Weimer walked. Perkins was up there trying to square to bunt and um, on, I think, a 1-0 pitch. I think Weimer took off, stole second without a throw. Perkins sacrificed bunt over to third and then a wild pitch to bring bring in Weimer. Kind of similar, like you said, to Garrett Mitchell uh, run in that one nothing game the Brewers had. So we're seeing we're seeing more of that. The Brewers are starting to steal more bases. I was kind of wondering when that was going to happen because we talked about, uh, especially early, early in the preseason, or let's just say late in the preseason, you were talking about how Yelich and, and Mitchell and, and many others would have a chance to contend for, you know, a, quite a few steals this year given some of the rule changes. And Yelich has five, Miller, Turing, and Weimer all have three. And we're starting to see, I think the Brewers are somewhere in like the 10th in the MLB range or so 
um, in stolen bases. So we're seeing the Brewers start to be a little bit more aggressive on the base pass, and I think that's that'll be certainly more fun, but we'll be missing, of course, Garrett Mitchell, arguably the fastest of the Brewers runners. Yeah, huge loss there. I did say that Garrett Mitchell would steal 40-plus bags this year, so unfortunately that one looks like it'll be it'll be incorrect. They have quite a number of injuries right now. We were talking about this before the show. They've got Hauser, who should be returning pretty soon. Gus Varland hopefully will be as well. But then long-term, they've got Woodruff down, Garrett Mitchell now, Alexander, Ashby, Justin Wilson, and Luis Urias. Tyrone Taylor should be back fairly soon, maybe maybe in a couple weeks, realistically. So they've got a lot of injuries, but in spite of that, they have been able to weather the storm so far. Fifteen and seven is an excellent start, but now is where it's going to get interesting. With now you're down your starting third baseman, your number two starter, and your starting center fielder. Are they going to be able to weather that, and and how are they going to deal with that? Yeah, I think it is going to be you know can they weather the storm? That that really is what it's going to be. Obviously, they're in a great spot already, eight games above 500, so that gives them a nice cushion. But you also don't want to see that um, that you know what you've been able to build up here the first uh, 20, 20 or so games just be wiped away here in the next month or two. But they they do they are in a place at least where they've got some room where even if we you know we're probably not going to see them continue to play quite as well as they have been playing so far this year with the loss of some of those key players like you said Woodruff and Urias probably most notably. But I, the good news is they have they have. Uh, you know, eight games over 500. We're only in the end of April. We have a lot of season left to play. And hopefully, hopefully, obviously, um, within the next couple months, the Brewers get healthier. We don't see any, you know, other serious injuries and the Brewers are healthier in the second half of the season. Because we all know that the Brewers are going to be up there with the Cardinals if they're able to stay healthy, which so far really haven't been able to do. So I think that's the, the, the question is, can they weather the storm? We may not be sitting in first place by the time you know Woodruff is back or Urias is back, but we've got to be still competing, still up there, and I think the Brewers are going to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were there were some positives and some negatives, so we'll get into our three up, three down segment here. Talk about three good things that happened this week, three bad things that happened. I get the honor of doing the positives this time, so I'm I'm glad about that. <clears throat> The first up we have is Bryce Wilson, who's done a nice job for the Brewers so far. He had his, his biggest outing against Seattle when he pitched a scoreless ninth and then went back out for the 10th after, or maybe pitched scoreless 10th and went back out for the 11th after the Brewers had scored. And though he didn't get credited with a save, he prevented the Mariners from scoring that runner on second. Huge outing for Bryce Wilson. He went into the season as probably the last guy in the bullpen, the long man, the low leverage reliever, but he comes through in the big situation and he has been quite good so far. I think the biggest thing has been just providing them with innings when they need innings because he's he's not the the back end arm that you're relying on, but 13 innings so far and he's allowed just two earned runs. So that'll play in any role. I don't expect him to maintain that going forward, but he's done an excellent job. He's been I would say the under the radar guy of the pen. Hobie Milner's gotten some recognition, Peter Strzelecki, but Bryce Wilson has been a big member of the pen and this past week really showed that. Rowdy's heating up. That's our second positive of the week. 
he had a few home runs this week. I don't even know exactly what the number is, but he's got seven now on the year. He started off slowly the first week or two, but he's now up to seven home runs, 17 ribbies. Slugging 551 already, and there was a lot of talk going into the year about a rowdy breakout season this year. It seems like it might be happening. We're starting to see the early signs of that hitting for power. That's really what he's going to be at his best is hitting probably 30, 35 home runs a year, as well as getting on base at least a reasonable amount of time. You also expect that the uh, the shift limitations will help Rowdy they have so far, it seems like, and will continue to going forward. The last up of the week is the Mariners sweep. Of course, they lost two out of three to Boston, but sweeping the Mariners in Seattle, and especially on the last leg of a 10-game road trip on the West Coast, is that's not a small thing. Good Mariners team. The Mariners, of course, historically have not been great, but right now they're a good team. They're coming off their first playoff berth in 20-plus years. They've got some talent. The Brewers went into Seattle on a sort of depleted roster. Mitchell got hurt during that series. Burns got hurt during that series. And they also hadn't had a day off in 8, 9, 10, 11 days. I don't even know how many days. But they end up coming through with the sweep. Big series, big series win. Big sweep in Seattle. Yeah, absolutely. A lot, a lot, a lot of good things going on this week. Rowdy, you know, there's been several times. Rowdy, uh, Yelich, it's happened as well, where you see that hard, hard ground ball between first and second base, just outside the stretch at the second baseman, and I just kind of smile because you know, back in the day, back in the day, as in last year, it was a ground ball to the second baseman out in right field, and they they threw him out by eight steps. So it, it, there's been definitely, I've definitely noticed. I mean, Yelich is still only hitting 250, so I'm not, it's not like he's um, necessarily hitting for a great average because of it, at least at this point. But um, Would be I, I've definitely 2019, though. I think. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, I, I think just just seeing anecdotally a couple of hits go through for both those guys. Um, yeah, it's, I've definitely noticed it. That I could throw a down in Rowdy Telez's error in the in Game Three of the series. He had a ground ball, probably a double play ball to his right and he just like tripped over his feet and the ball just like hit him and bounced into the outfield <laughs> uh and it was a pretty routine play um but it rowdy yeah didn't look didn't look good there but he looked good at the plate this week which uh of course is is most important so three down here for you garrett mitchell's injury number one um obviously um a big loss for the brewers losing your starting center fielder and a guy that we really wanted to see more of this year just uh, really a month a little over a month that we got to see him last year so Big loss uh, that the Brewers will have in, in Garrett Mitchell. Potential opportunities for guys like Blake Perkins and, and some others that we'll get to. But that's number one, Mitchell's injury. Number two, Matt Bush. We talked a lot already about game three of the Red Sox series. Uh, probably no other guy to talk about more than Matt Bush. And we'll be talking about that more. That's our second topic today is not just Matt Bush, but the Brewers bullpen and their strategy that they've had in past years in acquiring relievers seems to be it seems to have gone a little south over the last couple of years so we want to talk a little bit about that uh, Matt Bush of course um, has had a very rough start to a season that is followed up by a, a rough second half after the Brewers acquisition of him last year um, and so there's some questions as far as where he fits into the bullpen if at all um, the way he's been pitching and then finally third down uh, Sal Fralick getting hurt over in AAA um, so with the Brewers losing Garrett Mitchell they opting opted to, to call up Blake Perkins Perhaps we'll see Sal Freilich come up um, in the next couple of weeks after after recovery from an injury. But the injury bug um, really touching the Brewers everywhere from the big league roster all the way to Sal Freilich and AAA. Um, so that's, I guess, your three up, three down segment for the week. 
And uh, let's let's jump in, David, to the Garrett Mitchell injury. Already talked about it a lot. Uh, Blake Perkins, we we saw come up. Um, quick fact for you: two sacrifice bunts by Blake Perkins in Game Three of the Red Sox series. First player, first non-pitcher in the Craig Council era to have two sack bunts in uh, one game, and and really successful bunts. They were actually like textbook, really solid bunts. Um, you don't see those. You don't, it, I, I haven't seen a a bunter like that since Martin Maldonado. <laughs> No, <laughs> and Martin Maldonado might go down as the best bunter in Brewers history. Uh, he was, I, I remember when I would edit players on MLB 2K when, when we would play that on the PC, and I'd always edit them to try to make them as, as accurate as possible, a.k.a. make them way better than everyone else. But I would always, always, always make sure to make Martin Maldonado a 99 bunter. But the problem was that if, if it was nobody on, because he's a bad hitter, nobody on two outs, Martin Maldonado comes up, and I'd try to bunt for a hit. It'd be a perfect bunt right down the third baseline, but he was like a 12 speed. So you know that he's not beating it out, and he'd, he'd get beat by about half step every time. Don't think he ever beat one of those out in, in MLB 2K. But I also wanted to add that you you did type Glenn Perkins in the document, which, common mistake. I, I always mix up the, the last name, the players with the same last name, but I wanted to correct that in case in case we ended up starting to talk about a former Twins reliever instead. Close enough. Close enough. But but Perkins is I know there was there was a little bit of backlash that they called him up and not Freilich, which Freilich got hurt, I think it was just the night before. He jammed his thumb. He was taken to Milwaukee for MRIs. Results I I think are still pending right now on the severity of it. But he was placed on the IL. So that's why they opted for Perkins. Perkins was also already on the forty man roster. So it made it easier to make that move. Perkins isn't someone who's a top prospect right now, but he was formerly a, a decent prospect, but the bat never really came along. He was drafted as a switch hitter back in 2015, second round pick of the Nationals, but he started switch hitting really when he got to the minor leagues. So he had to, to make that adjustment as he was learning to, to hit pro ball pitching. And that ended up kind of hindering his development he was always a, a speed and defense guy in center field. Thought of as maybe uh, our favorite, a good fourth outfielder. And that's that's probably his, his ceiling at this point. But he finally was able to put it together in AAA last year in the Yankees organization. Hit for some, some average and some power. He, he's always had a good eye at the plate. So when he put that all together, he had a really nice year in AAA. Enough for the Brewers to want to take a chance on him. Sign him to a major league contract. And... I think he's better than Jonathan Davis, what we saw last year. Davis really didn't hit at all. Perkins, I think, is more competent at the plate. Of course, he's going to be one of their weaker hitters. That's probably evidenced by the fact that he was called to bunt on twice in Sunday's game. But he's he's a more viable major league option than some of their past depth options. And it's also hard not to be excited for a guy who spent seven, eight years in the minor leagues finally getting called up to make his major league debut. So certainly a, a long journey for Perkins to get to the majors. And I think his mom, his mom replied, or maybe his aunt or someone replied about how it's been a difficult journey to the major leagues, but he was really excited. She, she commented on my post about Blake Perkins and, and also mentioned specifically the, the challenge of learning how to switch hit. So good for Blake, Blake Perkins getting recalled. Congrats to him on, on the major league debut. And it'll be interesting to see how the Brewers 
manage the outfield in Mitchell's absence and how they work Perkins into that rotation. Yeah, and that's that's I think the big question mark because you've got you have obviously got Yelich in left for the most part, but now you've got Joey Weimer who's been been playing a lot in center and he's shown to be a competent center fielder defensively. The bat hasn't exactly been there um, for him yet, but it's it's super early. This is his first time in the big leagues. Um, but do you play Joey Weimer every single day in center field? You know other options out in center: Owen Miller or of course Blake Perkins. But that you know begs the question of, of who's going to be in right field, which. Brian Anderson would be a viable option, but now with Urias down, likely a lot of a lot of games you want to have Anderson at third because then you've got two rang at second um, most days as well. So it's it, the Urias injury actually impacts the outfield because of Brian Anderson. So it, it, Anderson's forced to probably play mainly third base while Urias is gone, and so then the outfield gets left with, like I said, Yelich in left. You can throw J- uh, Winker in there as well once in a while, but he's primarily going to be DHing. So then you've got Weimer, Owen Miller. Blake Perkins to kind of man those two outfield spots um, while we wait for Tyrone Taylor um, and later in the season, Luis Rios. So I guess how do the Brewers make that up? Is it just a combination of those kind of light hitting outfielders of, of Weimer, Miller, and Perkins? I hope that when Freilich is healthy, they call him up. I think Freilich is the best center field option they have there among the healthy guys or more than the healthy the healthy Blake Perkins, I should say, because Tyrone Taylor also should be back in probably two to three weeks. He still has to build up, and I think he's starting a rehab assignment in, or starting to play in games in Arizona, but of course he didn't get spring training, so if you think about the average player that needs four plus weeks to get ready for for the season, Tyrone Taylor's no different, so he'll need some time to build up, but Taylor could end up being, I think, more important than people were expecting this year. People were almost wishing Tyrone Taylor would get out of the way of the young guys this year, but he might end up playing a lot because of Mitchell's injury, and that's why it's so valuable to have a good option as a fourth outfielder like Tyrone Taylor because of this, because of Rios getting hurt and pushing Brian Anderson back to third base, creating some playing time for a Joey Weimer, who maybe we we thought it was going to be Tyrone as the fourth outfielder, Weimer and Freilich in AAA, but now there's more playing time than than you would have expected. So I hope Freilich gets called up when he's healthy. I don't know when that will be, and we'll get some some more information on that pretty soon. Otherwise, I'm not sure that there's another obvious option. Right now in AAA, they've got Tyler Naquin. They could go to Naquin, but they do have to add him to the 40-man roster. And actually, now that I look right now, he's actually on the IL as well, so... He would not be an option currently. Monte Harrison, I don't think he's the answer in center or Sky Bolt. They could call up an infielder, someone who could play third base specifically, so that Brian Anderson could play more right field. But Abraham Toro is probably the only real option there. So they have some options, but I think Blake Perkins is probably the best for now. You give Perkins some opportunity before Tyrone gets back. If Freilich comes back from, from injury before then, then give Freilich a, a chance, but then once Taylor comes back, you probably option Freilich or Perkins back to get Taylor back into the fold. Yeah, you said like you said it. You said it. Taylor's going to have a bigger role, even if it's just for a shorter time period. Um, but he's going to definitely have a bigger role. And I, I say Brian Anderson. It, I talked about this with with Wade Miley. Brian Anderson's kind of the Wade Miley 
um, mm-hmm. on the offensive side because he adds a lot of flexibility. We've talked about this before about the way rosters are constructed now and you don't have your your outfielders and your backup outfielders and your third baseman and your backup third baseman. Like Brian Anderson mm-hmm. being able to play third and right. I mean, if we didn't have that flexibility and Urias goes down and Anderson's only an outfielder, then we're really thin in the infield and, you know, Brasso or Miller and two rank, two of the three are playing every day. And, you know, now with the outfield, same thing. So Anderson's versatility comes in huge. It really, really, really does. I think that's underrated, the versatility that he brings to the roster. And, yeah, I think, Frey, like, you have to bring him up. This is, I mean, what better time to, to bring him up than I don't think the Brewers saw themselves in a spot where they would need him this badly this early. But that's just the way the cards fell. And, and same with Tyrone Taylor. No reason to rush him back, but um, the Brewers could really use him just for some stability, because you know what you're going to get for the most part out of Taylor, given his track record in the big leagues. Um, and he's going to probably be a little bit more consistent than a guy like Joey Weimer, um, or even throwing maybe Owen Miller in the outfield or something like that. So the Brewers are going to have to plug and play before they get healthy. But like we said, hopefully we're talking a couple weeks before either Freilich um, or uh, Taylor are able to to get back and, and bolster the the depth in the outfield. So any other thoughts you'd have on, on the kind of the ripples ripple effects of, of Garrett Mitchell's injury? I think the two guys you, you just mentioned them that could end up benefiting from a playing ta- playing time standpoint with this are Mike Brasso and Owen Miller. They both play an adequate third base and they're better op- options offensively than Blake Perkins. So if you play more of Owen Miller and Mike Brasso at third base, then it opens up Brian Anderson to play more in right field. You get Weimer in center. I think then Blake Perkins becomes more of the backup outfielder because you'd rather have more Mike Brasso and Owen Miller in the in the lineup than Blake Perkins. I think those two guys are ones that could benefit from from the injury. Yeah, that's a good that's a good point. Definitely. Definitely would agree with that as well. I'd like to see Miller get some regular playing time, see if he can live up to that 400 batting average that you have him projected for this year. I had him projected for a 400 Something like that. Yeah, something like 400. Yeah, I think you had him passing up Ted Williams, if I don't. Was it? um, But but not Bob Hurricane Hazel. No, 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 no. Nobody nobody would pass up good old Bob Hurricane Hazel. Yeah. So in a uh, kind of a a downer episode, topic three is a little bit – a uh, more upbeat. We're talking about the Brewers' defense, is focusing especially on William Contreras and his improvement. So I guess topic three is a little bit more of a uplifting topic. But number one, Garrett Mitchell injury and the way the Brewers can cope with that. Number two here is Matt Bush and the Brewers bullpen. So a lot, a lot more, I guess, negativity here uh, on the uh, on this week's podcast. Of course, Bush having the start of that blow up inning, Javi Guerra inheriting some runners and give, ultimately giving up the grand slam to just blow up in the game, but. At this point now, like we talked about here in the intro, Matt Bush coming over at the deadline last year, sub-3 ERA with the Rangers. He had been with the Rangers for a while. Um, they had given him that that, start, that second chance um, after his time in prison. Um, and and so the Brewers, like I said, get him at, at the deadline. He wasn't very good last year, uh, got plagued by the long ball. And we were hoping for him to be that eighth-inning guy. I think it was quite clear he was going to come in that role this year. I was pretty excited about him. I thought he was going to have a bounce back season, and he said far from that. So I guess what do you do at this point with with Matt Bush? We talked about Strzelecki taking over the eighth and, and Bush going down into the seventh inning last week, but now we've had a, another week, and it, Bush doesn't exactly look at a seventh inning guy either. So what do you do at this point if you're the Brewers? Right now I think you use Bush in lower leverage situations. 
kind of what they did with Taylor Rogers last year, late in the year. After that, was it a grand slam that Rogers allowed in a I think so. key moment? I want to say it was off the bat of was it? I think it was the Mets. I was going to say J.D. Davis, but I think he was traded at that point. But either way, <clears throat> Rogers allowed a grand slam after walking the bases loaded. And from that point on, he was essentially used as the up by five, down by five, maybe fifth inning and in not a not very close game. He, he was a low leverage reliever. I think Matt Bush, probably that's the role that he goes into right now. I, I don't think you cut ties with Bush yet, but you can't keep using him in these high leverage situations. He hasn't come through this year. It's not like we're talking about Devin Williams here, who's got the track record. We're talking about Matt Bush, who has some track record, but not the track record of a lockdown reliever that you expect to turn it around quickly. It's not like a Devin Williams slow start from last year. He was good last year with the Rangers, but he 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 had a track record before that. 2016 and 17, he was pretty good in Texas, but then barely pitched between 2018 and 21. So at age 37 already, what are you exactly going to get out of Matt Bush? And now his velo is down by almost three miles per hour. Now, is that a function of age? Is it a function of his, his workload last year? It was the most innings he's pitched since his rookie year in 2016. It could be either of those. It could just be a, a fluke thing where it's going to come back. I mean, when, with someone who relied pretty heavily on his velo during 97 miles an hour on average last year, going down to about 94.5 is a huge difference in how you attack hitters and, and your effectiveness. So I think for now you, you push him to a low leverage reliever. But if this continues into, I would say maybe if this continues into June, I say you maybe give it another month plus. If it continues into June, then you, you probably cut ties with him. Yeah, well, I think I think it's also important to look at, if we look at the game logs for, for Bush, his first appearance this year was April 1st um, at Chicago. He pitched uh, a scoreless inning there. April 5th, another scoreless inning. April 7th, scoreless inning. Um, the 9th, two-thirds of, a, of, a, of an inning, scoreless. I know this doesn't tell the whole story. April 13th, one inning, two runs. Again, April 17th, one inning, one runs. He had a scoreless outing on the 18th, two-thirds of an inning, scoreless on the 19th, and then a four-run outing here on the 23rd. So if you just look at the stats, you know, Bush had a, a terrible outing, obviously, against the Red Sox, and then essentially he gave up earned runs in two other appearances. And the remaining of his appearances, he didn't give up uh, a run. He does have a save, got to call it the save. Um, that he's that he amassed this year too. So I don't know. Is is it a, is it a bit of an overreaction, um, or or is it really you know? I guess is it is it is that the case that that Matt Bush is kind of on a he's on a, a ticking time bomb where he's probably got like you said about a month to steer the ship, um, and or else his his time with the Brewers could be done. I don't know if ticking time bomb is the word I would use. It seems a little bit dramatic. Maybe on a short leash would be would be the way to accurately portray it. I think they've had some guys on ticking time bombs before <laughs> where, you, where you know that they're not going to last with the Brewers. Naftali Feliz. Naftali Feliz. He may have been yeah. one of them. Eric Gagne. I don't even know what they did with Gagne. I think they released him before the year ended. 
Yeah. That was that was uh, about twelve BP before podcast. <laughs> twelve something years like before that. the yeah. podcast yeah, started. Something like that. So uh, we were we kind of followed. I don't know. We were we were pretty young, but uh, yeah. I mean, he's the walks have been up. He's been he's walked at least entering Sunday's game. He had walked five guys. His strikeout rate was was fine, but uh, the walks were up. He's allowed a lot of home runs, which. He was prone to the long ball with the Brewers last year. To be honest, I don't know exactly if home runs they don't doesn't seem like home runs were a big issue in his past. So is that just a fluke thing? Home runs sometimes are flukes. Sometimes pitchers actually do have a strong tendency to allow home runs. So I'm not sure if Bush really does have that, but he's been allowing a lot of hard contact. I, I don't yeah. feel that it's yeah. an overreaction to say they should demote him to low leverage situations and and not cut ties with him for a month. I think it would be an overreaction to say let's just cut ties with him now and and, and cut our losses. Yeah. yeah. Well. Well, I mean, if you look at like you said, he's he has given up entering entering Sunday. He had given up three hits. That's it for the season. Um, yeah. But two of those were for home runs. And then he also had five walks. So it's, like I said, I guess the numbers can tell a lot of different stories. And anytime you have a, you know, a third of an inning, four runs given up, that'll quickly blow up the stats. Um, As I would know, probably better than anyone. <laughs> That's true. That is, that is true. So yeah, I guess, like, like you said, I don't know if it, I, I would agree. It's time to, 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 to mow him down. No questions. Strzecki can step in there. I'm not super concerned about Strzecki. He's been off to a great start, continued to continue to build on his success in 2022. But let's zoom out a little bit on the Brewers' strategy on acquiring white, uh, uh, relief pitchers here. Taylor Rogers, you already mentioned, of course, in the infamous Josh Hader trade last year, was uh, quite bad um, in his time with the Brewers, also plagued by the, the long ball a little bit. But more recently, including Rogers, Trevor Rosenthal, um, who David – you, you should have worn your Trevor Rosenthal shirt today. Oh, I should have. Didn't, didn't plan ahead on that one. But uh, Trevor Rosenthal, uh, Matt Bush, Taylor Rogers, Daniel Norris, and John Curtis. Names that I think Brewers fans, for the most part, want to forget about. And those have been really the, the, the last five or so relievers the Brewers have acquired. So I guess what are your thoughts on the Brewers' strategy of acquiring these types of arms at the deadline? And, and should they be rethinking what their, what their strategy is going into this trade deadline? This is something that I hadn't really given much thought of until Sunday when I was going back and forth on Twitter with a few people, some pretty smart Brewers fans. I don't know. One, I, I forget exactly who all the people were. I know one of them was Jonathan Judge, who I believe is the founder of DRA, the stat used by Baseball Prospectus. One of the guys that sparked the conversation was Derek Van Riper, who hosts a number of the podcasts on The Athletic who's a Brewer fan. He grew up in Wisconsin. But how you go about acquiring relievers is, I don't know if it's something that really, like you're not, you're not going to sit around and, and analyze it that much, but it does have a big impact on the success of a team. People tend to overlook the importance of a good bullpen, I think, when you get into the postseason because they talk about the, well, when you look at a roster, you think about the starting pitchers. Maybe you think about the Devin Williams or you think about the Josh Hader that the Brewers had. 
in years past. But when you're talking about the bridge guys, the seventh inning, eighth inning guys, those pitchers have a big impact on, on games, whether or not it might be reflected in their, I think war would be probably the biggest stat that undersells relievers. So it's, it's a very important thing to have a quality stable of relief arms. But how do you go about that, especially with two months of performance for relievers being extremely volatile? I mean, we saw that with Bush. We saw that with Rodgers. We didn't see that with Trevor Rosenthal. There was no performance to go off of. But even we saw the, the positive of that. Drew Pomeranz had his best two-month stretch of his career in Milwaukee in, in a Brewers uniform. We saw Anthony Swarzak put together some of the best baseball that he's played in that short two-month stretch with the Brewers in 2017. So they have had success in turning some of these arms into good bullpen options. But where do you go? Do you So let I guess let's look at what they've done. They've traded Now Matt Bush and Daniel Norris might be in a little bit of different categories, but I I would say as a, a generality They've traded mid-tier prospects or given up mid-tier value for mid-tier arms. And it hasn't really turned out over the past two-plus two years. But it did, in large part, turn out between 2017 and 19. So do you keep getting going after pitchers and, and hope that it turns around? Do you change your method of evaluation? Now, it's always easy to say evaluate better because everybody's trying to do that. But is their evaluation really broken? I mean, they turned Hunter Strickland into a pretty good reliever a couple of years ago. We found Hobie Milner. He was a, a guy that wasn't drafted and developed. Yeah. And I think I mean, it's pretty likely that among the uh, the guys that they have right now in Bryce Wilson, Javi Guerra, of course, has gotten off to a tough start. But it's possible he turns it around. Gus Varland has looked excellent. I think it's pretty reasonable to expect at least one of those pitchers will turn into a, a solid arm. So where have they gone wrong? Is it in the strategy? I guess I kind of just presented more questions than answered <laughs> any, but is it in is it in the specific players that they're targeting? Is it in their strategy as a whole? Is it in the quality of the players that they're targeting? Like what what is really the issue there? And I think I, I guess I think it's a combination of them. Yeah, I thanks for asking the question because I've I've got all the answers. But uh but but no, I, I it was a it was a good uh, Twitter thread. Um, I'll shout out at RD Top T O P P at Derek Van Riper at uh, Jonathan Judge like you mentioned, um, and Abe Jurzowski looks like joined the conversation as well. So um, shout out to all that. It was a good it was a good uh, conversation on Twitter, being able to just hear some thoughts on on the bullpen and and you bring up a good point. You bring up a lot of good points. You know, Drew Pomeranz was I mean outstanding. He was amazing for the Brewers on that two month run, and he was. Basically, like Daniel Norris in the first half. So, what's the difference between those guys? I don't know. The Brewers must have seen something from Norris. I can't recall off the top of my head what we gave up, but it wasn't nothing. We gave like, up none Reese, of these. Reese Olsen, who's, I mean, to the casual fan, it might be, ah, Reese Olsen, who really cares? But he, I could see him being a pretty good, maybe a, maybe a three or four starter, maybe a good back end reliever not insignificant yeah right and that's that's the thing like it i think it'd be one thing like trevor rosenthal was kind of like a, I, I don't even i guess i don't it's a bad trade even to talk about but uh, like some of these guys i feel like were a little bit lottery tickets and we gave up 
I think, too much for them in general. And the Brewers are, like, out of all organizations, the Brewers are one of the most, I think, one of the biggest organizations that worry about overpaying or over over trading mm-hmm. for guys when in times of need. I mean, think about the Brewers last year when the Brewers didn't go out and get any bat, really, any mm-hmm. meaningful bat, um, when we knew we needed one. And I think the, the rationale for it was we probably needed some outfield, an outfield bat, but the Brewers knew that they had Freilich, they had Weimer, they had Mitchell, um, Jackson Churio even. So, I mean, I think that was the rationale for not not giving up prospects for an outfielder last year, and they probably needed one. Or not probably needed, they did need one. And so, like, the Brewers are, are generally really concerned about overpaying, and if they're going to overpay, they're just not going to make the move. And yet, it seems like a lot of these, to me, I wasn't necessarily totally against, besides maybe take out the Rosenthal and take out the whole Josh Hader situation. I don't mind acquiring Rodgers. I don't mind acquiring Bush, even Norris, but or Curtis. But I just think we gave up too much for them. And I'm not opposed to the strategy, but I, I don't know that, that that strategy works every single year. I think it's something that when you see the right guy, like Pomeranz clearly was, or, or Swarzak, like when you see the right guy, take advantage of it. But when you don't see the right guy, let's not try to take a swing at, at somehow pulling off some magic and turning Daniel Norris to Drew Pomerand. Let's get a Brad Boxberger, who's going to be a solid seventh inning guy, who's not going to all of a sudden come in and have a sub two ERA, but he might have an ERA at three point five, and he's going to be relatively consistent. And we know what we're going to get from him. Yeah, that's a tough thing too because well, I would add that I actually think that the John Curtis trade was a good trade at the time, but yeah. then he he got hurt so. When I say it was, it hasn't panned out. I mean, it didn't pan out, but was it the Brewers' fault? Probably not. Whereas with Rosenthal, I mean, he was already hurt, so that one I, I would give a little bit less, a little bit less leeway to the Brewers, a little bit less benefit of the doubt. But with with Boxberger, maybe I'm just playing devil's advocate. But it seems like Bush may have been in that category, or did Bush not have enough of a track record? Yeah, maybe. I think that's. I mean, yeah, Bush isn't quite in the same category as as as, as Rosenthal, as Curtis. Definitely not as Norris. He was he was more established, and that's actually why I was more excited about him um, in the acquisition of him last year because I thought he was going to be pretty decent, and I thought for the most part we knew what we were going to get. But yeah, I, it doesn't always pan out that way either. I, I think that's that's fair, and it does beg the question of. What if if we're gonna abandon this strategy or we're not gonna use this strategy as much? Then then what is the the other strategy? Um, but I, I don't know. I think the Brewers have a little bit under and under acquired at the deadline again, and I think I think it's the same reason because they're concerned about overpaying for for guys at the deadline because teams know that they have holes that they need to fill, and the Brewers are a team that's willing not to fill them if if the price they think is is too high. And then talk about how they were engaged on a number of fronts about some quality players like they do every year. Yeah. yeah. I think they were think the, really close. Yeah. Yeah. And then put up a, a pennant about their participation in the 2020 wildcard series. Yes. I think the, the difficulty is if we think back to 2018, 2017, 2019, the, the teams that were either made the playoffs or were close to the playoffs they had a very good core of relievers. They had Hader in in all three of those years. They had Corey Knable in 17 and 18, who was lights out in 2017. 
and in the, in the playoffs in 2018 was lights out. Jeffress was one of the best relievers in baseball in 2018. So when they added Jeremy Jeffress, or excuse me, when when they added Joaquim Soria, he was not expected to be the eighth inning guy. He wasn't expected to be someone that ends up turning the bullpen around because they already had these other players, these other relievers. And so when Joaquim Soria goes up and puts a four ERA up in 2018 across the two months he's here, it's like, oh yeah, he was a solid reliever because he did what they needed to do. But then when you have a bullpen where you have, you have Devin Williams, who's of course excellent, but then you've got this collection of Taylor Rogers, who's coming off probably the worst month of, of baseball of his life. You've got Matt Bush, who's had a good half year, but otherwise really has no recent track record. Then you bring in Trevor Rosenthal, who was a good closer in the shortened 2020 season. And prior to that, 2016, maybe that's really the last time he had success. Good stuff. But if you expect these players to be the ones that are the the key late inning relievers to get to the closer, I think that's asking too much. And so maybe the problem isn't that they're well, maybe their evaluation should be corrected or their their strategy midseason. But maybe what they need to do is they just need to, instead of targeting these guys at the deadline, they need to get these guys before the year. We talk about them sorting out the bullpen roles early in the year, but I think that works for the lower tier guys. I think that works for your Bryce Wilson, your Gus Varland, Javi Guerra, Yoel Piamps. But does that work for a seventh, eighth inning guy? I think that's a little bit too risky to go into a year with still kind of sorting through options in your, your seventh, eighth inning arms and then say, well, we might need to add one or two pretty big relievers at the deadline now. Whereas if you would have tried to go out in, in the offseason and figured that out and then supplemented it when two of the four guys at the bottom of the, the bullpen don't pan out, then you bring in two relievers to solidify that, and that's where Anthony Swarzak or Joaquin Soria ends up being the the key arms that you need in the bullpen and, and ends up becoming a, a very good bullpen, especially for a team that has been so reliant on the bullpen and maybe not maybe isn't as much right now, but you're going to need that bullpen to be successful in October. Yeah, that's a good point. It is it, it, We're filling different roles than we were in, in 18 um, cause yeah, you, you're right. I mean, looking at the, the current bullpen, you take out Devin Williams and you've got Matt Bush, Hobie Milner, Peter Strzecki, Javi Guerra, Yoel Piamps, Bryce Wilson, Elvis Peguero. And then you've got Cousins in the minors, Varland on the IL, Adrian Hauser shortly returning. But like, if you think about the track record that these guys have, there's, it's minimal. I mean, Hobie and Strzecki have about a year of success last year. Not a knock on these guys, but there's not a long track record. You already talked about Bush, Javi Guerra, Piamps, Wilson. All those guys are completely unproven. And you're right. We we were looking at guys who are going to be the fourth or fifth or sixth arm in the pen that we were kind of taking a flyer on. And now we're looking for guys that are going to pitch meaningful innings. I mean, even I mean, Elvis Peguero was pitching in the seventh inning of a tie game. I mean, like, but I mean, that, that, that's that's the current state of the bullpen. And mm-hmm. And with Matt Bush pitching the way he he's pitched, Strzelecki and Williams are, and if we want to throw Milner kind of up there, are here. Um, and a lot of the other guys, you know, are you don't really know what you're going to get. Bryce Wilson's been pitching well, but besides him, you know, Javi Guerra's had a really rough start to to the season. 
and Varland got hurt, who was off to a good start. So, yeah, I mean, probably the seventh inning is probably a spot where Varland is in the game, but instead we got to go to Elvis Pagaro in a tie game, and that wasn't ultimately what, what lost the game, but it does beg a question of, you know, are we trying to fill big relief spots with these with these guys who we were successful in doing somewhat in the fourth or fifth reliever? And even then, we're talking about Gus Varland being the guy that you'd probably go to instead in the in the seventh inning, and we're talking about someone who has not even seven innings in his career under his belt. So, I, I mean, I, I think Varland, I think you're right in saying that Varland is the best option over Piguero, over maybe someone like uh, Yoel Piamps. But right, I don't. I mean, I, I I think it's too risky to go into. We're early, I guess. Maybe we're overreacting a little bit. We we were talking about how good the bullpen had been just last week or two <laughs> weeks ago. Maybe this was just the re- regression week they were due for. But I think there is some concern, some reason for concern. There were some warning signs. We just chose to ignore them a little bit in previous weeks because yeah. they were doing so well. And the expectations for a bullpen comprised of four guys who had minimal track record, plus Hobie and Strzelecki and Matt Bush, the expectations were very low. I think going into the year and there's some talent there clearly, but sorting through that talent is, is a difficult process and they're going to definitely need to add and add the right guys, not just add strictly yeah. uh, to their pen. They're going to need to add uh, or, or merely add to their pen. They're going to need to add some, some quality and someone that you can rely on and that you can expect, I think with a, with a reasonable amount of confidence will be, a guy that you can rely on in, in a late season, seventh inning, late season, eighth inning matchup, or, or even when you have to go to the pen early, if they're in October. Yeah. Yeah. I, there's, you're just not going to win 90 games and an NL central division title. I don't think with, uh, Hobie, Strzelecki and Williams, you're, you're really top three relievers you can count on. Yeah. Not with the, not with the pirates playing the way they are, especially look out, look out. <laughs> So let's let's close the close the chapter on on the Brewers bullpen woes. Uh, you're right; it, it is quite a quite an about face from uh, the the conversation last week about the Brewers bullpen. And you give up nine runs in an inning, and that that the, the Brewers bullpen stats goes to the wayside. So, um, but yeah, I, I mean, expectations on the Brewers bullpen were quite low, I think, nationally. But I think as Brewer fans, we still had pretty high expectations for the pen. Um, and I don't know. They they can still they can still be solid. I, like you said, I don't think it's the time to jump ship on the whole bullpen, but um, definitely some question marks. I think some. I think the bullpen just got exposed a little bit this week and came to light that the Brewers bullpen's not quite as good or quite not quite as deep as we might have thought it was. And the Brewers defense as a whole has been really really good, David. So why don't you jump in? Let's uh, end on a positive note here. So just tell us about how good the Brewers defense has been, uh, specifically Contreras and a couple others. Mm-hmm. Well, Contreras is the best story and the most notable one because his big question mark coming over to the Brewers was the glove. He was going to be a guy that hit, but he wasn't going to be somebody that that was really good defensively as a catcher or at least expected to be very good. We saw his brother Wilson, who was not a very good defensive catcher either, and William had a similar reputation as a catcher, but even younger and even less advanced defensively. But he comes in, he works with the coaching staff, I, I, I don't know all of the, the parts of that and who helps train the catchers, 
I know Charlie Green, who's, I guess I don't even know his title right now. He used to be, I think, minor league field coordinator. Uh, but he he works in the organization. And he's known around the league as one of the best catching coaches. They have Nestor Cordor, who's a former catcher and, and coach. I think he's a bullpen catcher now who works a lot. And then Walker McKinven, who's their eighth assistant coach, I think. He's the, the last assistant coach on the staff. And he works with catchers a lot as well. So they put a lot of work in with Contreras. Contreras came early to spring training to get going already, learning the pitchers, but also improving a lot. I think that goes under the radar. He has to learn all the pitchers that he's never caught before. And then in addition to that, he's got to become a better defender. And he has become a better defender. He's second in defensive run saved. He's been the best pitch framer. I think on the Brewers Unfiltered podcast, they were talking about how even the way that Contreras throws the ba- the ball back to the pitcher with his arm action can play a role in, in umpires being fooled into thinking balls are closer to the strike zone. The, the, it's, it's almost a, a sociological study or a psycholo- psychological study determining how umpires think strikes are. Because remember in 20, maybe 2013 or 14 when Lucroy was considered the best framer and then he all of a sudden was not that great because he became the guy known as the good pitch framer. So then umpires started intentionally calling less strikes. And so it's, it's weird. It's, it's a little bit strange, but the Brewers have an extremely deep track record with turning Narvaez into a quality defender when he really, he, he was, I think he was worse than Contreras coming in defensively, at least watching him. Contreras did not have any sort of track record as a as even an average defensive catcher. Even Yasmani Grindal, who was considered a decent defender, became a lot better in, in 2019 in his year with the Brewers. So it's been a remarkable trans, transformation already not even one month into the year for Contreras. And if he ends up becoming an average, above-average defender and, and continues to play like this with his, his quality hitting skills, the Brewers could have a top three catcher on their hands, at least top five catcher in the league, and one that they acquired for Esturi Ruiz, who actually is playing pretty well for Oakland, but but a pretty low cost considering how what it, what it, what it would normally take to get a catcher of, of Contreras' caliber. Yeah, <clears throat> I mean, a huge, huge deal. We'd be talking about, yeah, like you said, not only a, a even let's say top five or top eight catcher in all of baseball, which I think is being conservative. He's, he's young and the Brewers have him for a while and at a you know relatively low cost. So yeah, he could, he could be a huge, he could be a cornerstone of the Brewers organization for the next couple of years here, depending on how the Brewers play things out with, you know, I guess the trio of players of Woodruff, Burns and Adames. So I, yeah, he could really be a cornerstone. He's huge um, in, in, the Brewers uh, team this year. And Bryce Turang's been outstanding as well defensively. I've been impressed with his defense and his base running. Um, he really can fly. I didn't realize that, um, which plays into his defense as well. He's been excellent. I already talked about Joey Weimer. He's looked great in center, which surprised me just how, how well, how athletic he is in center, also on the bases. So his his speed, I mean, the, this is the Brewers' fastest team the Brewers have had in a long, long time. Um, so we talked about it on the base Bill Garner's pass. 1992 Brewers, maybe? 
based from at least from my experience from from just you know the the naked eye uh, I would I would say so but the 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 speed plays on both sides of the ball and we're seeing that um, on the stolen bases and some of the first to third plays but also now we're seeing on the defensive side in Contreras um, or excuse me I should say in Turing Weimer um, and then we've also seen Adames be solid up up, up the middle as well he's made a, uh, several nice plays. And he's a consistent defender as well. So the Brewers are on pace for um, the best DRS ever. Um, it became a stat in 2002. They're on pace for 184. We'll see if that actually happens. But regardless, I think the point here is the Brewers' defense has been outstanding. And you don't really necessarily see it quite as much. But that, of course, will only help a Brewers pitching staff that should be above average uh, without you know with just average defense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right now the Brewers are 15 and 7, but they've had a lot of injuries. They they've got of course Mitchell, Urias, Woodruff out and they've had look at the if you look at the pitching staff, they have Matt Bush and Javi Guerra who have both been pretty pretty bad. Burns has not been himself, 4 and a half ERA so far. Lauer's ERA is right up in that range. Wade Miley's been only the only starter that's been really good and Freddie's been not bad. I mean, he he is an ERA right under four, but I think has outpitched that a little bit. And their offense has been good. I would say I would say a little bit better than than expectations. Adames and Rowdy are are playing well, but I think the real reason behind that fifteen and seven start isn't so much in the offense or the pitching, but I think it's the defense and the base running. Now, of course, you have to hit some and you have to pitch some, but I think the difference between the Brewers and a team like the Cubs, who are 12 and 10, I think, or, or the difference between a lot of the teams right now in the middle of the pack is the defense and the speed, because that's never going to take a day off. They they say speed never takes a day off, or never, speed never slumps, I think, is, is what it is. And the defense has been outstanding. Both of those areas are ones that don't really get talked about. Nobody really goes and looks at the defensive run saved leaderboard unless you're preparing for a podcast you you look at the the hits leaderboard or the average or the OPS or the ERA but it's the defense and the base running that has been extremely important it's been top notch it's been best defense in baseball base running has been top five top 10 in baseball and I think that's going to be where the Brewers separate themselves from the other teams and are able to make up some of that ground that they may have uh, have lost by trading Hunter Renfro or Colton Wong. They're going to make up that ground with the defense, with Bryce Terang, with Joey Weimer, with William Contreras taking a big step forward, or Willie Adames being one of the better defensive shortstops in baseball. And even Christian Yelich's defensive numbers are better this year than they were last year. Yeah, I don't, I don't, don't necessarily need to go into that, but that was kind of an interesting one for an established guy who didn't necessarily make huge changes in the offseason that we're aware of it's kind of interesting to see that I don't know if what you want to attribute that to but that has been nice to see his defense pick up seems like his his base running has picked up too like I don't know if it's just an effort thing but um the I'm sure I'm sure the bases and the new rules don't hurt but he just seems to be running the bases better um faster than he did in the past I don't know if that's an increased emphasis or what it is but um all around it seems like it's from top to bottom in the roster it's impacted everybody yeah we forgot to mention our, our fourth topic is what version of Christian Yelich will the Brewers be getting this year? Well, we'll just have to cover that weekly 
a weekly recurring topic mm-hmm. uh, will be the yeah the Christian Yelich debate. But we have seen a, a decent version of him. Um, he hasn't necessarily tore the cover off the ball. I know he's pretty high up there in strikeouts, but overall he's off to a decent start. And like you said, defense has been good. Base running has been good. Le- the the team leader in stolen bases, which now with Mitchell down, I'd say it's probably pretty likely that that Yelich. Leads the mm-hmm. leads the team five five steals so far, David. So I'll put you on the spot right now. You had over forty for Mitchell. Now April twenty third here. What's your prediction for uh, Yelich as far as number of steals at the end of the year? I'll go thirty on the dot. Okay, okay. I'll I'll take the over. I'll I'll say I'll say he he'll he'll steal over thirty. We'll see if he can if he can do it. Maybe he'll have a 30, 30 steal twenty home run season. That'd be That'd be pretty solid with a decent batting average. Mm-hmm. Um, and with Mitchell gone, he may be manning the leadoff spot a lot more as well. Mm-hmm. Although he hasn't slugged over 400 in a few years. So I think he hit he, – how many did he hit last year? 12? Was it that low? I thought it was – I thought it was more – I know that – I know I forget who. Somebody had him projected for 20-plus this year. I don't know that he'll necessarily do that, but I can – I can certainly hope that he that he does. Fourteen last year, so not a not a crazy stretch that to see that could happen. No. But yeah, we'll see. We'll see if he can if he can do it in that uh, leadoff spot. But like I said, uh, kind of a, a little bit of a downer of, a, of an episode and of a week. And even though the Brewers going four and two, sweeping a, a good Mariners team in Seattle and then losing two out of three from the Red Sox. But coming up, the Brewers are continuing the homestand. Uh, Detroit coming to town, team we don't see of uh, very often, and Miguel Cabrera coming in his final season, of course, future Hall of Famer. And then uh, the Angels, also another team we don't see much. Of course, you get to see Trout Otani coming to Milwaukee for that weekend series. So Brewers have some interesting opponents coming to town, and they'll continue to play at home. So we'll see if the Brewers can um, stay hot overall as a, as a team and, and take care of business against uh, the Tigers and the Angels this week. So David, before we go, I know this has been a little bit of a longer episode as we uh, parse through all of this, but any final thoughts here before we go? I did prepare some final thoughts, but they're not about the Brewers. The Oakland A's seemingly cementing their move to Las Vegas. It's not official by any means, but the team president did say they're dedicating all their energy towards a Vegas future or future in Vegas. They purchased some land to build their their new stadium in, and it's kind of, I guess, a foregone conclusion. We saw it coming. It, it's not abrupt, but still would be would be the first move since 2005. There are other implications for this. There could perhaps be expansion coming. Rob Manfred has repeatedly said that the A's figuring out their ballpark situation and, and Tampa Bay as well are the two pieces that need to, to fall into place before expansion happens. But the Rays are moving a little bit closer towards a new stadium. And I think this might put additional pressure on the Rays to get their, their stadium issue worked out. And the A's moving to Vegas by 2026, 2027 could end up putting expansion, I think, already in talks by maybe next year. I don't think that expansion would happen for another maybe five years. But it still is something that would be, I think, exciting. I think it would it would involve more than just two new teams. I think it would involve a little bit of a restructuring of the, the AL and NL, maybe realigning geographically. I think the divisions might go to either, well, they for sure would go to either four or eight per division. Personally, I'd be in favor of bigger divisions. 
So there are a lot of implications that could go, and I think the A's are are the first domino to fall in their their plans moving to Vegas in this reshuffling of of the landscape of baseball coming in. I think the next decade this will this will happen. Yeah, I wonder if the the rule changes this year will be kind of that the first domino, not not necessarily domino, but like the first change in this new era of of baseball. I don't know, maybe that's maybe not, but I'm I don't know. I don't know that I'm excited for an expansion. Anytime there's new teams or new things going on, it's exciting. But I don't know. I'm 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 happy with where the Brewers are at divisionally in our division and and the leagues. I'm not sure I necessarily want to see a big shakeup um, in the the division or or even like we've talked about geographically. Of course, like the Brewers have several teams that are closer. Of course, Minnesota and Cleveland, um, for one, that could make some sense to move to the division. And I don't know that I necessarily would want to see the Brewers completely restructured in in the division. Especially when we get to play the Pirates and the Reds so mm-hmm. often, I, I'd hate to see them go. <laughs> yeah. What do you think? So you know how they, they there's like the golden era or the golden age from in the 50s, and there's the, the, the dead ball era pre-1920. So this era of baseball, if we, if, we, if we do actually get 2023 being the starting point of the next era of baseball, let's say from when, would, when do you say when do you think this era started? Maybe 2007 or would you go back to Moneyball 2002 I was gonna say kind of after the steroid the whole PED sure. stuff I'd yeah because that was a steroid era so what do you think yeah. this era is called the analytics the sabermetrics yeah something around data or yeah probably because that's I mean the game's changed a lot over the time period and that's the biggest change the game has had um so yeah I think that's probably the best way to characterize it would be would be around that and overall i don't know i'd have to look at the the numbers as far as mlb as a whole as the sport has progressed compared to nba mlb nhl um, and the other sports leagues during this time too um because that's certainly the goal of right now some of the restructuring is to try to increase engagement and increase fans all those things for mlb which we'll we'll see whether or not that happens but yeah I, i think that is probably the best way to sum up the last whatever 15 or so years a strikeout era maybe yeah, walk the the three three true yeah. outcomes. Three true outcomes. There, there we go. Yeah, something to that, something to that nature. We'll we'll we'll, we'll try. We'll have to. Yeah, we'll have to come up with a, a better name than that. Try to get that coined before the uh, the era shifts, so that we can try to hopefully, uh, I don't know, get enough people to to jump on whatever name we can come up with. I feel like Joey Votto. Joey Votto kind of epitomizes the era, and he played for a long time. You think so? And, I don't to some degree. To some degree, I feel like I, I guess I don't know. Could you name someone else who a player? I guess that that would maybe epitomize the this this fifteen year stretch. Adam Dunn. He he was <laughs> he was maybe the forefront of the revolution of sabermetrics or the three true outcomes. Oh, of 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 the three true outcomes. Yeah. But, but I think fair. in like or Joey Gallo would probably be more more of a poster child for it. Not as, not so much using it as a player, but being evaluated by it in terms of how players have changed in their evaluations by front offices. Because Joey Gallo doesn't have a job, probably, if it were 1980. They're not going to give a playing time to somebody hitting 190, 180. Yeah, true. That's true. Yeah, yeah, that is true. So, yeah, maybe, I don't know, maybe... 
I was thinking more on the analytical side, and, and Votto's not necessarily the most analytical, but there's also not a lot of guys that that were around in the late 2000s that are still playing today. So he's one of those guys. Otherwise, I, I think about some of the pitchers, obviously Kershaw, Verlander, just to name a couple. But I, I wouldn't say they necessarily epitomize. Oliver Perez. They, I think he might be the only if it's if it's o two to twenty two, I think he might be the only one that played in all in every year. I didn't realize he did o two to twenty two. Wow, crazy. Yeah, there we go. Oh, the well, Oliver Perez well, era. Other than Albert Pujols. <laughs> true. Yeah, him too. Him too, I guess. But he doesn't he doesn't fit the three true outcome or the no or the sabermetric. He was he's actually kind of a more old school, mm-hmm. you know, RBI kind of guy. So yeah, we'll we'll work on that. Uh, We'll work on that in our in our uh, off time. So we'll we'll wrap up today's episode again. Brewers finishing the series, excuse me, the week four and two, and they'll be continuing the homestand against the Tigers and Angels coming up here this week. We'll be back for another episode next week. And until then, as always, this is Peter and David Go signing off. Go Brewers. listening to the barrel banter we'd appreciate it if you leave a comment or review so we can get the word out about our show to hear more find us on youtube at the barrel or on twitter at the barrel mke we look forward to connecting with you next time